Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for answering the Cattleman's Call here on the Cattleman's Call podcast. I'm Lane Nordland. Happy to have you with us here today as we make our way through the summer here of 2020. Uh, our guest, uh, Jacqueline Wilson from Nebraska, joins us here today. Uh, she and I were talking before the conversation started about how it's very droughty down in Nebraska and here at home in Montana. We have been having inches of rain fall on us around the uh, uh 4th of July weekend, we, we're having tornadoes, so some weird weather. It's like we're almost uh, switching weather systems between Nebraska and Montana, but uh, Jacqueline Wilson joins us today. How, how are things down in Nebraska? Yeah, exactly. Like you said, Lane, they're definitely a little dry and, and um, kind of inundated with grasshoppers right now, too. So we actually had a plane come in this morning and spray some fields, and hopefully we can kind of get rid of those little buggers because they're eating everything right now in sight. Oh goodness! Well, I hope uh, hope that helps and uh, and uh, things continue to to go forward here for you this summer. And, and what a weird year that we are experiencing here in 2020. Uh, we were all down at the cattle industry convention in San Antonio a few few months ago, and things were looking so great between trade news and just optimism uh, of the beef industry. And things have changed so much in, in just a few short months. But uh, as I've said in our past podcast. We here in the industry continue to move forward and, and, and continue to advocate for, for our industry no matter what the challenge is. And, uh, and, and thank you so much for taking a few minutes uh, with us here today to join the Cattleman's Call. And, and I've actually had a request from many of our listeners since the name of the podcast is Cattleman's Call. What is your Cattleman's Call? When you're working cows or, or caking them, trying to get them to come in, mooch them in just a little bit, what is the call that you talk to your cows with? <laughs> you know, we actually don't have one. We we kind of make a running joke around here that, that usually it seems that Dad and I, we just grunt at each other a lot, and especially when we're working cattle. So I think it's probably kind of an old Tim the Toolman type grunt. That's what we use around here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's pretty good. Exactly. <laughs> I think our cows respond to that pretty well. <laughs> well, I think that's going to have to be the first question I ask all of our future guests here on on the podcast. So, what is your? I, I, ours is just, "Hey, boss," you know what I mean? Just yell that, and I, I just <laughs> I, I wonder sometimes what it would be like for a city person to just maybe even a hunter or something being out on public lands and and you're out riding through your cows and and you're trying to chum them in and, and talking to them and just what would go through somebody's head? That would probably be one of the weirdest things uh, for, for a city person to experience when we're talking or, or uh, chumming our cows in with our cattle call. Uh, I, I think well, that... probably be wondering what you're cussing out out there. <laughs> <laughs> There's no cussing on any of our operations. Oh, absolutely. Not around here either. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jacqueline, uh, I, I just think uh, I, I've heard you speak before. Actually, I think I interviewed you several years back in Sheridan, Wyoming, at the uh, Ranch Sustainability Forum uh, that the Padlock Ranch had put on. I was just a oh brand new, I was like a brand new farm broadcaster at the time. That was way back when. I don't even think I had an HD camera at the time. So uh, um, I, I don't even want to watch that footage because I know you would have done great and I would have been like slipping over my words trying to do an interview. I mean, not much has changed. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> but uh, Jacqueline, for yourself, uh, you are a fifth-generation cattlewoman there uh, uh, growing up near Lakeside, Nebraska, and you ha also have a, uh, an operation near Alliance, Nebraska. 
But could you just uh, talk about growing up there on your commercial Red Angus operation and uh, what really drove you to, to stay in the cattle business? Uh, let, let's talk about from growing up, going to college, and, and what drove that, that interest and love and passion for being a part of the cattle industry. Well, I think, you know, I mean, it always started at an early age with my parents because, um, you know, I, I was ready to turn on the ranch. Um, we started back in 1888. My dad's the fourth generation that's back. And so when I was born, you know, he was working with my grandpa at that time. And and I, from day one, as far as I can remember, you know, my mom and my mom was usually the, the pusher behind it. She's like, you know, you're always going to come back to the ranch, always going to come back to the ranch. And so I guess I kind of had that in my mindset until I got into high school and then realized in, that maybe there was something else out there. So I had just started to get involved in, on, into some political stuff. I um, had attended Girl State and then got asked to go on to Girls Nation out in D.C. and kind of got a, a little bit of a politic bug. And so I decided, well, instead of maybe heading back to the ranch right now, maybe I'd go to law school and be a lobbyist and was kind of heading down that path. And then, oh, in my senior year in college, uh, it was a week before dead week, and I um, made the decision to come home for that summer to work. Uh, we were having a difficult time finding help because we live literally in the middle of nowhere. And, and I did, and that was in 2002 and I've been here ever since. So yeah, it's, it's a really interesting path that we kind of take, but it's, it's been a great one so far. So do you have any other siblings on the place or, or at all, or is it just you there at home with your folks? Yeah, I do. I, so I have a younger brother. He's four and a half years younger, and him and his wife, they live in Omaha. Um, he also attended school at University of Nebraska, and then he went on into, um, kind of started off in, in the finance industry and now is in real estate and does a great job there. And, and they come out to the ranch every once in a while. I have an, an adorable niece and nephew that get out here. And, of course, you know, I mean, their first birthday presents were was a horse. So I, I, we, we we still try to keep them around the, the ranch life some. So, yeah, but I, I do. Um, he, he never has really had much interest in the operation. He's he's definitely a mover and shaker now in his own field. So when, when you went to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, uh, what did you study there then? Political science or did you do uh, College of Ag uh, type activities? Oh, I kind of studied partying there for a while, it seems, but no, um, I was an economics and business major, and I think that was one of the things that, you know, looking back on, if I had an opportunity to do it all again, I probably would, and, and know where, I, I mean, and realize where I'm at now, I probably would go back to a tech school instead, and do like a vet tech or welding or even diesel mechanic school, because I think that was one of the things I sometimes get frustrated with in college, is the pace wasn't quick enough for me. And then not only that, but I couldn't understand why I was required to take some classes that were like, this is so far from where I want to learn and what I want to be. And, and, and so I, I would get a little frustrated with it. Um, but I still, I mean, University of Nebraska is a phenomenal school. It was a great experience. But, yeah, I, I, you know, I wish I would have looked now at, at some of their smaller um, schools. They've got a great one here in Curtis that has an amazing vet tech program. And, boy, I wish I kind of would have gone that direction. Well, even over the past few weeks, I've been spraying weeds on, on, on a new operation my in-laws have purchased, and I'm just like, gosh, I really wish I would have paid more attention in Weed ID class back in college, and thank God for apps on your phone that'll tell you exactly what those uh, what those plants are, because it's amazing what you forget, but it's all about what we do now and continue to move forward in those life experiences, for sure. And, y you know, when, when you look at 
kind of changing an operation or bringing new ideas back. When you came back home in 2002, what were some of those initial ideas that you maybe wanted to implement that maybe your, your folks were a little bit resistant to? Uh, were some of those ideas good looking back now, or were they kind of uh, out of the ballpark? Oh, I had no ideas. <laughs> and, the reason being, and the reason being, when I was in high school, um, you know, I remember being out one day, and at that time my dad and my uncle were partners, and, and I was out riding horseback one day moving cattle with my uncle, and my uncle goes, Hey, just so you know, when you go to college and remember, when you come home, you don't know it all. <laughs> and so that always kind of resonated with me. So, I mean, I was pretty, I was pretty quiet for there for a while. I mean, granted, I was an extrovert at that time, personality wise, but in terms of, in terms of things, making decisions or whatnot, dad and Brian had it really under control. And so, um, over time though, I started to learn more about the operation and kind of about the, the directions and history of, of why we were doing things the way we were doing. And it really started to intrigue me. And so, um, since then, I definitely have made some great changes. Uh, there's also been some real duds along the way, but I mean, for the most part, I, I think we're, we're continuing to be kind of outside the box thinkers. And that's historically how we've been too. Um, my, my grandfather and great grandfather always were thinking outside the box and I'm, I, hope that they're looking down now and going, hey, yeah, you know, it's in good hands and, and we like how you're thinking. Just keep thinking that kind of maybe a little bit different from some of your fellow producers and, and you'll be just fine. And one of those areas that I see that you help implement was Flying Diamond Genetics, which is a recipient business. Uh, could you talk about that and how that started and how that is a part of your business model too? Yeah, absolutely. So so FDG came along. Um, the idea... Um, came forward in about 2011, and I was I was a little unsettled at that time. I think you know you you realize that you're going to be stepping in someday to to take over as as owner or manager or whatever at an operation, and and I was getting a little frustrated just with with where I was at from a professional point of view because I mean I I would talk to my parents about hey what's our you know what's our succession plan and at that time everything was going to be split directly in half between myself and my brother who lived in Omaha and so I'm thinking okay well let's see if we split from my uncle and then I have to split again with my brother I don't know if I'm going to be sustainable and that was a real concern is like okay well I have this responsibility I'll have to lease for my brother and what's not which is great because he's an excellent person to deal with but I don't know if I'll be able from a financial perspective to afford it. And so I um, kind of thought, well, I better start developing my cowherd more and getting more numbers and, and maybe working on being a little more financially secure. And so I, um, the idea came, I was visiting with a fellow board member at that time, a Nebraska cattleman, and he said, hey, this is something that we've done. I think he'd be good at it. And so I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know a thing. I didn't know embryos were seven days old when you put them in. I mean, I knew nothing except how to raise a cow. And I kind of jumped in full force and ended up that was a drought year here in our operation and I was able to come in and buy some of our open cows that were um, not had not been very long bull exposed and turned around and joined them with my ranch cows and started a re reset business and then oh it's been about three years ago I had the opportunity to um, to per purchase a, another cow herd and to lease an operation um, for five years that's north of Alliance there right on the Niobrara River and so it jumped on that, and so we're continuing to expand that operation. And, and because um, because of the growth there, uh, a year ago last May, I brought in a business partner on that. So Jamie, she spends time in Colorado. She's an RN in Colorado, and then she comes up oh, usually a couple times a week back and forth between Nebraska and Colorado to kind of oversee things up there. So 
it's been it's been a relief for me because the places are 70 miles apart and so I was to the point I was traveling back and forth almost daily trying to take care of things both here on the ranch and then also up there and so it's been really nice to have somebody kind of just oversee some of that day-to-day stuff. So how how is the relationship building with the recip uh, portion of your business with fellow cattle producers in that region or across the United States? How has that relationship building uh, helped you succeed and grow as a cattlewoman? I think one of the things that I've learned over time is is you're not going to be able to please everybody. I mean, I've had some I've had some phenomenal clients over the years, and then I've also had some <laughs> like everybody else. I've had some guys. And, and so I think you learn, you know, I, I think you learn to, to not make excuses, um, to always back, back facts with data and, and at the same time to be very blunt and in your opinions on things, but in a way that still is very respectful. Um, I mean, there's, there's definitely been some producers that we've worked with that their genetics um, didn't really fit our environment and maybe weren't what they were hoping to achieve. And then at the same time, I mean, I have one of my clients that's been with me from the beginning, a, a great uh, Red Angus seed stock producer out of Minnesota, and he's actually even sent cows now down here that I run for him too, and along with putting in embryos. And so, I mean, it's it really comes down to to the producer and and kind of what their wants and needs are. But I, I definitely I definitely find more of a camaraderie with seed stock producers or people that have similar mindsets. Um, I've done the clubbies and stuff, and it's just uh, the mindset's a little bit different from our operation um, because you're focused more on maybe one one animal or one great one instead of uh, instead of kind of that consistency across the board. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what you, and you mentioned the environment that you raise those cattle in. Uh, let's just give a little pitch for for those genetics too, Jacqueline. Uh, uh, what is the uh, the the type of operation and environment that is the perfect place you think for for your genetics to head to? So it's it's been really kind of interesting to see over the years because I mean we we're in Sandhill Country here um, on the home place now up there on the lease place where the recepts are that's a little bit it's a combination of Sandhill and hard grass and so there was many years I was like I hadn't been very familiar with hard grass and and so those cattle seem to be doing really well on it um, as they do here in the Sandhill Country but what was really interesting is uh, oh geez it's been probably about three four years I actually sent um, a herd of my cows out to Nevada and ran them on a, a share basis up in the up in the mountains by jigs. And so that was the first time, you know, we're, we have cattle 7,500 feet and above, and, and it was really interesting to see how they performed out there because our goals here have always been about um, efficiency and uh, uniformity and consistency. And so I was, I was very pleasantly surprised that I was able to take them out to a completely different ad- environment, and those cows excelled out there. And so I've I'm, I'm always been a firm believer that, you know, you need to fit the cows to your operation, you don't need to adjust to uh, to adapt to the cows, and so we've really tried to develop an animal that kind of can we can put anywhere and is gonna is gonna have a chance for success. And it it really you're not that busy, so why not throw a branded beef program into this mix as well? <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Wait, who's does, who's that dumb? <laughs> <laughs> no, I I, I just think. Uh, uh, the, just uh, your business model is so unique and uh, and uh, really great to look at. And, you know, from the genetic side of things to the Flying Diamond Beef uh, farm-to-plate uh, direct-to-market uh, brand, could you talk about how you got into this? H- how new is this venture and how much time went into creating it? 
So originally, I, it, I, everybody's kind of jumping on this farm-to-table movement right now, but this idea came about five years ago when uh, myself and a, a girlfriend of mine, we were looking at a, purchasing a packing plant. There was a small USD plant, USDA plant in northeast Colorado. It did about eight head of eight head a week or so. And we had, I mean, we worked on that for about six months and finally decided and and in a similar, a similar business model to what we're doing today and decided, no, it wasn't the time that farm to table movement hadn't really taken off and got a good solid hold yet. And then, oh, we started talking about it back again this, this last fall. And finally, um, towards the, it was about December, January, we made the, myself and my business partner and the genetic company, we're like, yeah, let's just do this. And so we decided we needed another third individual. So went back to a girlfriend of mine and said, hey, would you like to get involved in this too? And because her her area of knowledge is dealing with packing plants and then also feedlots. And she was like, yeah, I'm in. So it's it's definitely been um, an interesting time. I mean, because we were meeting with investors and retail groups and stuff, and then COVID hit. And so we kind of had to back, kind of stop where we were at and backtrack a little and kind of reanalyze where we were at and then go back and kind of focus maybe more on that um, just on the consumer level. And so it, it's been a neat time, but the saving grace was because we were had already had everything in the works. Um, we were able to, we had all our spaces reserved in the, in the USDA plants that we use and kind of before it all took off and all the craziness happened. So yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a good time to be involved and continues to be. So in your opinion, how do you think COVID is going to change consumer buying habits for beef down the, from now on? One of the things that's been kind of neat to see is it was we're already having repeat customers come back. I mean, we took our, our first cattle to harvest in, in March. We're, we're doing right now, we're kind of hitting that 15 head a month deal. Um, our goal is to get up to about 25. And, and really, I mean, I don't, I don't really foresee us. Uh, for a little bit growing above that. Um, I, I, we can do it from, from where we have the supply from, but just from just from the extra work involved, um, it's it kind of where we want to keep our numbers at. And I think what's been surprising is that people are more readily willing um, because it's a competition with prices in the grocery store. And so what might have see, been seen as before kind of a premium product based off of the prices, now they're starting to see these in the grocery store. And they're like, oh, hey, we can get this from a local rancher for for literally and in some cases less than what we're paying for in the grocery store yeah why wouldn't we support them and so i I think it's definitely opened their mind and i'm I'm hoping because of the quality of the product that it will continue you know when you start seeing that grocery store prices come back down and maybe our prices might not match them then that they'll continue because they know they know it's worth it so when you're looking at uh, the the beef that will be processed, uh, sent directly to these consumers, uh, what is your quality con- control on that? Making sure that uh, that the the cuts are exactly the grade that you want. What what are your expectations, and how do you track that? Oh, uh, we're picky, and, and especially you put three women together on a <laughs> business deal. I mean, oh my goodness. <laughs> You know, and and that one of the great things is is we have a we have a wonderful relationship with the packing plant that we use. I mean, it's I I love going over there. Um, this is actually probably the first time I've I've actually in, enjoyed taking cattle to harvest, just because the owner will come out, he'll unload the cattle, we'll walk through the plant, we'll see what they're fabbing that day, and I mean, you're really able to build that one-on-one relationship, and in turn you know, any questions or concerns or problems that you have along the way, you can share it with them. And they're really open to, to helping us out too. And, and so it's been really neat to, to build um, those relationships 
um, both be- between the consumers, but also our, our processors been, it's been uh, something that I, I wasn't planning on. Um, when you kind of talk about developing a business, but it has been one of the, one of the biggest blessings. Well, I, I just wish you luck in the future of the, the, the branded beef program. And just to, it's a way to diversify uh, your business model, as you've been talking about, and gives consumer, uh, consumers a different opportunity to just engage with uh, ranchers on a different level, for sure. I, I just think it's going to be interesting to watch uh, consumer preferences and consumer uh, input uh, on these uh, uh, direct-to-consumer beef brands in, in the coming months that's for sure. And, you know, we, we go from your, your operation and your background there to also being an advocate, stepping up into leadership. When, when did you first become involved at the county or state level uh, with the Nebraska Cattlemen? And who, who pushed you to become involved? <laughs> well, it, you know, I, it was one of those things. I wasn't really a generational a generational push. Um, my my grandfather and my dad both had memberships, but um, neither of them were really active on on the state or or even the local level. I mean, they would attend meetings and whatnot, but um, they kind of did their own thing. And and so it was an aunt that actually reached out to me in college and said, "Hey, there's an internship available with Nebraska Cattlemen in their communications department. Um, you might want to look into it." And so I had made a couple phone calls and went ahead and applied and got that. And kind of that was kind of my my first good taste of of everything that was going on. I mean, I had been on um, tours at that point. I mean, I remember going to my first packing plant. I think I was in eighth grade. And and you know, at the same time though, I had been to some of their like beef 706 classes and, and some of their leadership academies, but to kind of be around um, an association on a day on day basis and see really what all fires they put out and what all they were involved with um, kind of gave me the bug. And, and so then after college, I continued to get involved both in the cattlemen and, and also a number of different ag associations. I I'd kind of been that way all through high school even too. And, and it's just continued on. That was one of the things that was really important to me when I came back to our operation, because like, like most ranchers out here, um, we kind of forget some time to take a day off, and so I was it was pretty vital with my parents that I'm like, hey, you know, I wanna I wanna get involved and I wanna continue learning and and going to those conferences or conventions or whatever, and and they were okay with that, and so yeah, it's it's grown to the point now I can get a little picky about what I want to get involved with, and and some of the things I'm involved with now aren't even ag based, but I can bring an ag perspective in, which is which is sometimes it seems more and more. Um, as people become further and further removed from their operations, this is kind of what we need is we just need somebody on the board that's saying, Hey, I raise cattle or, Hey, you know, I, I have crops. And it's, it's, it's amazing to see some of that. Some of those people um, just love to have that relationship with somebody that they say, Hey, yeah, we, we know somebody who's a rancher <laughs> and it's, it's, they're really cool. They're, they're not destroying the environment. They're cool people. <laughs> So what are some of those local or state boards uh, that aren't directly ag-related but uh, that you sit on and, and are able to have that engaging conversation with fellow business people that help shape either policy or or, or whatnot uh, on the state or, or even national level then? Yeah, so the, the biggest one right now that I serve on is our Nebraska Humanities Council. And I'm the only ag producer on a, about a 40-member board here in the state of Nebraska, which was kind of surprising to me. And What is really neat is there's a group of individuals. I mean, we're talking everybody from college professors down to um, philanthropic, you know, 
attorneys to bankers to you name it that belong on that board. And something that was really cool that we were able to do last year is um, they always have a meeting out in greater Nebraska. And this last year they decided to hold it out in the western part of the state. And so as part of that, we we hosted them at the ranch for a morning, um, took them out on a sunrise view on top of the hill, threw them on a flatbed with, with straw bells and took them out through the cattle. And, and it's amazing. Um, some of those people have never set foot on a ranch, even though they live in Nebraska. And the response of that has highly motivated me to, to kind of uh, allow more of that on our operation. Um, sometimes, you know, we, we kind of forget that, hey, maybe somebody would like to come out and visit. And so people ask um, to come out and like, oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, we'll make time because what you can do is you can take that experience back and share it with more and more people, especially now with social media and, and all the venues of, sh- of sharing. And, and in turn, I kind of think it gives us a um, people become more relaxed and um, accepting of, of what we do and how we do it. Well, we have some relatives uh, that that live in California. Their grandpa was uh, was born and raised here, and uh, military took him all over and other careers, and they they ended up in California. And we have a cousin that, and he is a vegetarian. He had a he turned a vegetarian because a cow licked his arm at a petting zoo, and he just got <laughs> creeped out. Uh, but when I was younger, you wouldn't think that he would want to have any connection to, to Montana, to, to us. I mean, we've all, all got, always got along, I mean, and, and whatnot. But he now brings his two sons and his wife every year up to Montana. They vacation with my folks and my sister and brother-in-law at their place. They ride horses. They check out cows. And even though he's a vegetarian, his kids and his wife aren't, but he is open to this rural way of life. And because he, he didn't understand it when he was younger and he, he just is a vegetarian and, and that's his choice. But I just think it's so neat that he is open and that we were so closed mind to think that he would never want to come and learn about what production ag is and, and why we love to do what we do. And I think that's just us being ignorant, uh, my, uh, my, our family members, and, and he, they love coming up here and enjoying this Western way of life. I just think that's so important for us to not be closed mind to other people just because they might be a vegetarian, but their kids aren't, and they, they want to enjoy that Western way of life. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, I mean, there's those people out there that want to enjoy it. There's those that want to invite people out. But I think the biggest concern that I see time and time again is is we need to make sure that we've established practices in our operation where we can be completely transparent and, and these practices are going to be okay for other people to see that may not understand them. And, and that was one of the big things when we were developing our beef business. I mean, it, at the end of the day, you're harvesting a product, and, and that's just how it is. I mean, you're raising an animal, you're harvesting that animal, you're putting it on a plate. And so our goal from the beginning when, and everything in our operation is we need complete transparency. So if somebody asks us, okay, do you, do you do this practice or do you do this practice? We can say, well, yes, we do or no, we don't. And this and this and this is the reasons why. And I think that's one of the most important things is that, you know, people can have those opportunities to share their, their, their landscape and their livestock, but they need to be able to share it in a way that it doesn't leave somebody else with a negative taste in their mouth. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what are some uh, ways that you've uh, helped educate yourself and those that you work with to be more transparent? Would it be like a BQA, for example, or MBA, Masters of Beef Advocacy, uh, from NCBA, some stuff with uh, the state level? What are some of those ways that you've worked to just be able to be transparent and uh, be able to share that message? 
Well, absolutely. Those are both great programs. I've, I've been through both. I've also been through the top of the class program for, for NCBAs where they take um, graduates of the MBA program. And so it's, you know, those programs are phenomenal in terms of being able to, to establish that, that consumer, consumer rancher um, part, like piece of the puzzle there. And I think what else is important is uh, last week was a prime example of this. So I write for a couple different ag publications, just editorials about what's going on here on the operation. And and one of the the readers, him and his wife, were heading out to Yellowstone for their 50th wedding anniversary, and their daughter reached out and said, hey, do you mind if we stop by your operation? And I'm like, absolutely, come on out, you know. And so it was great to take a couple hours. And, and did I really have a couple hours to spare? No, I didn't, but I made it because it, they came out with their kids, and there was like six of them, and, and they loved every minute of it out here. And so to me, you know, being able to share that opportunity, um, that's something those people aren't going to forget. And it's just a matter of of kind of pausing in your day and realizing, okay, you know, I mean, the economics are tough right now. You know, the industry is a little sucky right now. The world in general is kind of a little sucky right now, but we can still take the time to share what we're doing and, and do it in a way that they can not only learn themselves, but maybe we can learn a little bit more about how to interact with people that maybe don't have an understanding about what we're doing. And that, that, of course, comes into advocacy, sharing your story. What, what are some ways that you have uh, been on the speaking front, obviously, uh, around your region? And Because like I mentioned, I, I've heard you speak in Wyoming, obviously, at NCBA events as well. But uh, how important it is, is it for you to engage with your fellow producers and, and making sure that they understand how important it is to tell their story or, 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 or making sure that they are open? to having someone tell their story for them that's in the ag community? I, I think it's important. I mean, it, it is important, and, and we've heard this time and time again, to tell your story, tell your story, tell your story. Tell, I mean, we're almost blue in the face with telling people that. <laughs> and and it is important. I mean, there's, there's, but it also needs to be done in a, in a level that you're comfortable with. And, and that's something that I really appreciate about the writing and the speaking is, you know, I'm, I'm able to give an opinion and I usually try to, to vocalize maybe a opinion that can or cannot be controversy. But a lot of times when, even when I get done speaking or writing about it, people may not know what side of the, what side of the issue I stand on, but I'm hopefully can raise a lot of questions about that particular subject. And so I think everybody kind of needs to find their own way to interact with others. Um, for me, I've, I've loved doing it with writing. It's, it's been kind of a, um, an experience I've, I've never thought that I would be in and had the opportunity to do. And, and for some reason, I've, I've really enjoyed it. And, and hopefully, you know, um, readers can get a little bit from it. But at the end of the day, I mean, the most important thing to me is I really try to, just try to limit the amount of hate mail I get. And, and so we've, we've been pretty successful about that. I don't, I don't get a whole lot, which I do appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the hate mail. Uh, like I say, uh, All right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get some of that sometimes. But, you know, it's just, uh, and the way I look at hate mail is just there's a lot of frustration and anxiety, no matter what the climate is in agriculture. And that's the way I look at it. If, if someone can vent their frustrations on me and, and help them get to the next day to keep uh, raising beef or crops or whatever it's going to be, I, I, I can, I got thick enough skin. I can do that, <laughs> but I don't sometimes. And I, I think that's what I, I, especially through this whole COVID ordeal, I think that's what almost disappointed me. about COVID got the, bad. The COVID got bad. And it was just like, you would go on top of a hill and I'd be out checking cows or something or tagging. And all of a sudden somebody would be like, 
just just an just a personal insult and somebody you never met just because maybe you belong to certain organizations or you think a certain way on a topic that that really is not going to control where we're at right now in the world and and you're just like man come on people we're better than this as an industry we're better than this our our ancestors are better than this well what what really concerned me is just how the animal rights groups really honed in on a lot of the disagreements within the livestock industry and used that to make uh, cattle producers look even worse and, and I think that is one thing we always need to keep at the top of our of our mind uh, is that yes we may not agree on some of these issues and but but there's other people that want to see all of us go out of business and a lot of the the disagreements that do occur and there and some there is good reason for uh, discussions to take place but I, I monitored a lot of the animal rights activity over uh, mm-hmm. all issues and, and it was terrifying how they just want, I mean, they, they were, they love it when agriculture disagrees with each other. Um, so that, 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 that's just one thing that I always think about. Oh, absolutely. They do. Absolutely. And, and when you can get dissension among, among the industry and, and I mean, there was times that I couldn't have told you of some of the producers, it, you know, if they wouldn't have had a name attached, if they were members of an animal rights group, or if they were a producer in our industry, because it was, it, you know, um, the groups like HSUS, PETA, they, they have such a, they, they come across as kind of more personal uh, and they'll kind of hit you where it might hurt. They're, they're definitely emotionally based. And I was, I understand our frustrations uh, in the industry. And I mean, at, at times too, but to, to kind of get away from the data and the facts and it was, yeah, it was, it was surprising because usually we're not the industry to do that. I mean, we love our lifestyle. We care about our lifestyle, but we're still pretty, pretty data driven and and we kind of we kind of forgot that for a while well obviously you you, uh spend a lot of time in uh, volunteering in leadership positions uh, whether it be with the nebraska cattlemen's or or within cba could you maybe share why why it's important for you to uh choose what uh, which leadership opportunities you want to pursue and and partake in on the state and national level yeah absolutely And, and you know i was kind of thinking about this earlier um well, just um, yesterday I was, I was kind of thinking out in the, out when I was uh, moving some cows, I was like, you know what, why, why am I involved in the things I am and why am I pushing so hard in, in our industry like I am? And, and it goes back to, there's, it's actually kind of an interesting story, but um, when I came home in my, in my late twenties and early thirties, I was really sick and I can't even tell you how many doctors I went to and, and none of them could come up with a diagnosis and they ended up usually just giving me a bottle of pills and sending me on my way. But one of the general consensus among those doctors was that they kept telling me that maybe I shouldn't be ranching, that it was too physically demanding on my body and maybe I should do something else. And I did not have a plan B at that point. I mean, there was, I knew I wasn't built for an office job. I knew I loved the land and the livestock. And I, I knew that that was a part of who I was. And, and I mean, when we had the legacy here that I felt it was my responsibility to continue on. And it kind of story kind of turned. I was heading down to eastern Nebraska. I was taking a horse down to a trainer, and I stopped at a gas station on the way. And I would go into these gas stations and I'd buy these five pound bags of ice because that was the only way I could get rid of these headaches. And I looked in the mirror at the in the bathroom at this gas station. I noticed my one eye was really drooping, my right eye. And long story short, I got hooked up with a, a specialist down in Omaha that I spent three and a half years with, and, and they found out my jaw joints had disintegrated, and I ended up having to have a full mouth reconstruction. And then I kind of plateaued on there, and so I ended up um, 
hooking up with another specialist, and this one was out in Arizona. And I remember going to, and I was just made a day trip down to Arizona, and I was sitting in her office, and she goes, Jacqueline. And she had performed a bunch of tests, and she goes, Jacqueline, you have Euler-Danlos syndrome. And I go, what the heck is that? I'd never even heard of it. She says, what it is is it's a connective tissue and ligament disorder. She's like, your, your ligaments, this is probably explains why you've always dislocated things over the years and all of, you know, why you're always in constant pain and whatnot. And I said, and I was sitting at this table across from her, and I said, does this mean I have to give up ranching? And she reached across the table and grabbed my hand, and she goes, actually, I think ranching is what has kept you out of a wheelchair. Wow. She goes, because you have such a physical strength because of what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. She goes, you keep ranching. And, and I mean, that was the turning point in my life. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I struggle at days. You know, my health is always, um, it's something I deal with every day. Um, I've, I've learned to manage and learn to progress, but I, I definitely am a lot better the more active I am. And so in turn, it's like, why would I not volunteer? And why would I not be involved? And why would I not share the greatest of our industry with others? And, and to hopefully ensure that this industry can be around another 132 years on the road. Because, I mean, I, I almost was to the point I didn't have that. And it would have been one of the biggest losses I've ever experienced if it was taken away from me. Well, I, I, I'm so uh, glad to hear that uh, you, you got uh, answers to your questions on your health. And But I just think it's remarkable, though, how that, that the ranching is truly a part of your core and has kept you going and, and, and helped your health. So I, I just want to say uh, I'm glad that uh, you've you've uh, found those answers, though, too. But uh, you still have to continue to go on. So I just uh, we'll, we'll just say some prayers for you, too, to keep on keep feeling good and uh, and, and whatnot, too, because uh, we, we just want all to continue to do this. So that's that's pretty dang inspirational, Jacqueline, just to, just to hear oh, that okay. story. Thanks. And that's one of the things I've become extremely passionate about. Um, I have a big birthday coming up actually tomorrow. <laughs> and it was like, and, and, you know, I think um, rural health issues and mental health issues in rural America is something that I've becoming more and more in, engulfed in just because I've seen it firsthand. I've seen it within our family firsthand. I've seen it among others firsthand. And especially in times like what we're going through right now, you know, those opportunities might not be there for people to really understand what's going on in their own life. And so just, you know, taking a couple minutes out of the day and whether it's taking phone calls or, or maybe helping with a mental health well, uh, webinar or something, you know, I just, I think it's in a way it's our duty to help others in the industry. Uh, and because we, we all are in this together and, and we all suffer together and we all, we all can celebrate together too when there's great things that happen. And, and a lot of times we seem to forget that, you know, this is not a job. This is not a profession. It's our lifestyle. It's, it's who we are. It's, it's who's made us. And it's, it's I mean, I, I want to see this continue on for generation after generation. In touching on mental health, what are a few of the resources that you talk about or when you talk about uh, uh, providing uh, links or, or ways that producers, farmers, or ranchers can utilize that to talk to somebody, to, to uh, feel comfortable and let them know that it's okay to be vulnerable and, and talking with somebody about these? Uh, what are some of the resources you utilize in that outreach? I, Lane, I, I actually hate to admit it, but there's not very many resources out there specifically geared towards farmers and ranchers. And I think that's something that, that you know, whether it be individual nonprofit groups or, or associations or whatever, whatever, that we need to be looking into at this point. Um, 
you know, farmers and ranchers are unique individuals in terms of their personality. We we're, we're okay with being by ourselves. I mean, if I don't see another person for a week, I'm good with that because I like my cows. I like my quiet. I like the land. And so, um, but that's tough for a lot of people to understand. And then not only that, but most of us live in rural, rural areas where maybe we don't have the capabilities of, of you know, ex- having things like ECT, TMS, some of those mental health things right next door. And so, or, or counselors or psychiatrists that aren't backed up months, months and months in advance, which is one of the issues that I've heard about time and time again in rural America. And, and so I guess my, my thing is, is I, I challenge any association out there and it doesn't matter, you know, what your other views are on trade or on, on labeling or anything like that. But, you know, mental health is we're going to lose, we're going to lose some of these great individuals because there's not resources out there to help them. Um, there are, there is a line here in Nebraska. There's a suicide line that you can, you can call free of charge if you, um, are experiencing some issues, but you know, when you go and look at the opportunities there to do more than that, um, there it's, it's kind of tough to find. And, and it's, it's sad because we need to make sure that we can continue on this industry and mental health and stuff, even as like the opioid crisis and whatnot is such a huge part in rural America. And I don't think people realize how big of an issue it really is. Here in Montana, Montana State University Extension, all of our extension agents, um, they are trained in helping identify um, just conversations that they have with producers because what what is one of the few individuals in a county that has exposure to almost all the farmers and ranchers are the county ag extension agent. And I know that has made a big difference. And, and I know each state is different, but I just think folks just need to be so much more willing to, to let their guard down, which is so hard for so many self-reliant cattlemen and women that, you know, they don't like asking for help. And, but there is so much on their shoulders, whether we're in a pandemic or not. And I just think the stigma of, you know, talking about mental health and talking about uh, people that maybe have thought about suicide or, or other alternatives uh, because they want to continue to do what they can, uh, you know, ranching or farming, whatever that may be, and financial stress is one of those number one drivers that we just need to make sure that it's okay to talk about mental health. Well, absolutely. And, and the difference between, you know, and I always kind of talk, when I talk to people about mental health, one of the things I, I make sure and, and really focus on is, you know, farming and ranching is so different because if you want to get out of farming and ranching, you usually have to sell everything. So you lose your home, you lose your farm, you lose your lifestyle, you lose every little part of it. You know, whereas if you lived in an urban area and you wanted a different, you wanted to get out of it, you just go in, give a two weeks notice and walk away. And, and it's so different for what we're doing. And, and I think that is also what makes it a challenge, too, is, is we know in the back of our minds, hey, if this fails, we can lose it all. And, and I think that puts a whole other level of stress on individuals. And so, yeah, being able, um, I know especially on social media that there was a time that people were reaching out to others during, you know, if they were having um, issues or, or kind of having a, a down day. And, and it was really encouraging to me for people to step up and, and, and see this firsthand of saying, hey, you know, here's my number, here's an email address, feel free to call me at any time. And I, I had a number of individuals that have called me just in the last couple months saying, hey, you know, we're struggling right now. Um, what, what do we need to do? And, and, and for the most part, as long as they just have somebody there that kind of says, hey, I get it. I understand. I'm there with you. Here's, you know, whatever I can do to help you out, I'll sure try. And, and that's the biggest part is just feeling like they have somebody there that they can call and talk to. 
Well, this is an issue that everyone involved in agriculture needs to understand, get behind, and just be willing to call up their neighbor if you know they're going through a tough time, and 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 just uh, showing showing support uh, that they will be there. So, I, I agree with you. I think we all need to work together to uh, create some more resources, and I think this needs to be something where ag organizations uh, of all backgrounds come together to to provide those resources and work together. Uh, that 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 should be a top priority for the industry um, across Yeah, that would the be world. wonderful. Absolutely amazing. I mean, that's a that's a great way to come together right there. You know, they always talk about associations needing to come together more and what better way than than survival to come together. Yep. Well, obviously, uh, you, you uh, are very active with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. I, I, I assume you've been on YCC before. I have been. So I, I'm a wise young cattleman's uh, call or young. Oh, I can't even remember the dang name. Young cattleman's conference <laughs> alumni from a few years back. But uh, you know, obvi- you're also uh, the board of director, uh, NCBA's board of directors, policy division, and resolutions committee chair. Uh, w- that is a pretty big role. H- how how did you find yourself in that role, and what are some of the responsibilities you have with that uh, that chairmanship? Well, you know, this is actually, this is kind of a, a different story here, too. I kind of, kind of came up a different way in that. So I was being, I was active on the, on the brass cattlemen. I was, I was at that time, I was uh, chair of our cow-calf council. And I, I remember attending my first uh, NCBA convention back in Denver. I was um, helping with the North American South Devon booth. And then one that George W, uh, yeah, George W. Bush came and spoke at. No, George, yeah, well, anyway, the younger Bush um, came and spoke at. And, kind of got around it the first time there, but never really ventured outside of, outside of the trade show. And so um, I got involved in Nebraska Cattlemen Board of Directors, and I thought, well, shoot, you know, I better, I better attend our, our annual convention and see what's all going on. And they had this meeting. At that time, it was called um, the Young Producer Council. And so I remember stepping into this room, and, and it was a bunch of young um, ag professionals and, and producers and they were electing a committee, um, they were electing members to join, to have a seat on all the respective committees of NCBA. And they were talking about the committees, and then they would throw their names in, and they'd get up and, and they'd give their speech about why they're interested in who they are, and they and they started talking about resolutions. And I'm like, oh, yeah, hey, you know, I've had the opportunity to kind of be on, in some of those discussions we've had on our state level with resolutions and what I'm like I, I and I loved it and I'm like oh, this is great so I actually turned to the guy sitting next to me who I did not know from Adam and I said could you nominate me for this <laughs> and he goes yeah sure I can he goes what's your name and so I held out my name tag and he nominated me for it and ended up giving a spill and got and got on one of the committee seats and got the committee seat for resolutions well I unbeknownst to me you know, on a, on the other on the policy committees for NCBA, you know, they're they're large committees. Resolution is a really small committee, and so that following, um, I think it was a summer business meeting, I attended my first resolutions committee and kind of got my feet wet. A year later, they asked me to move into vice chair, and then move up from chair after that. And I'm actually serving. This is my second time as chair. And, and so being able to interact with all the policy leaders, because how it works, of course, in NCBA is, is, you know, we'll have those resolutions and policy that comes up um, through those committees. So, you know, whether they be like international trade or marketing or animal health and whatnot. And then they, those are brought forth to my committee. And we're able to kind of be the English teachers. We, we proofread them. We make sure they read right. We, we make um, ensure that there's no conflicting policy. 
Um, at one point, the resolution committee was able to change the intent of, of the policy. We can no longer do that, fortunately. <laughs> and so, and then I have the opportunity to present those resolutions and policy, new policies in front of the, the board of directors at, at the annual meetings. And so in both annual and, and summer conference. And so it's, it's been really neat. Um, to kind of get a real firm understanding of some of the policy that NCBA represents. And that's why I get a little frustrated when we start griping and complaining about maybe one topic. And, and there's those people out there that, you know, really are disgusted with NCBA because they don't stand a certain way on one topic. And I'm like, do you realize, like, our policy book is, is it almost probably two inches thick because of all the great things that we do represent? So. I think sometimes people might not be aware that, you know, uh, NCB represents everything from tortoises to waterways over and up in the northeast coast. And and I, that's one of the reasons I'll continue to be a member is because, yeah, we I might not agree with, with every policy that we have, but there's a lot of policies that we do have that I, I completely support. So, Jacqueline, you, you talk about serving in these volunteer leadership roles what would you say to encourage a, a producer, young or experienced in, in the business, about serving in these leadership capacities, whether it be on the county, state, or, or national level, and understanding all that goes into creating these policy books in which the organization, the, these grassroots policy, what that forms the organization, such as NCBA? I think I think the the best thing any producer can do is just to just get involved. And I mean, and that doesn't mean showing up and and constantly voicing an opinion. Though opinions are great, but if you just show up and sometimes listen, and that's one of the things I think we forget to do. I know in all these COVID discussions, you know, we I I was getting constant questions. Um, um for instance, the of course the big one was was uh, labeling. And was getting constant questions. Unfortunately, I had I I'm have people. Pretty much most of the people I know are are smarter than I am. So I had great people that I was able to reach out with and said, "Hey, somebody asked me this question. I don't know the answer to it. What is the answer?" And and they would respond back. And so not only did the individual that asked the question learn, but I learned too. And and so I think it made me um, a lot more rounded and in understanding differences of opinions and how things work and. And at the same time, you know, being able to, to realize that, yeah, the more I can educate and, and learn and, and listen to other producers and share those opinions, the better off policy becomes. And, and I, I definitely encourage everyone, whether they get it doesn't and it doesn't matter what level it is. You know, it can be can be so simple as the county level all the way up to the national level. I mean, every level has has a different effectiveness to it and a, and a different importance. Well, and that's one thing we should talk about, too, is where these policies come from. It isn't just the, the leaders, the, the volunteer board members of NCBA. The policy comes from the cattlemen and women from the state association level. So I don't think people are aware of this, but it's, it's kind of neat because I actually see when we delete the name of, of what group brought the resolution or policy forward. And so it usually happens, there's a lot of times it does happen in resolutions committee that they'll just go and delete, you know, this was submitted by the or, um, Nebraska Cattlemen Association or Iowa Cattlemen's or Oregon Cattlemen's. And, and so it's, it's kind of neat at that point to, to realize, okay, these states um, brought this forward, you know, they, they took it to the committee, the committee discussed it, they passed it, and now they're sending it to the resolutions. Now we're kind of going and erasing where it came from. Because there's a possibility if it gets voted on and passed at the board meeting tomorrow, then it goes out to all the members that can vote on it. 
And, and it doesn't matter really where it came from because we're all producers and we all, we all have unique sets of, of problems that are based off of our area. And so, yeah, and then I've seen it from, of course, Nebraska Cattlemen Board, a director's side, where, you know, we're, we're very cognizant of, of those policy that we would take to those committees at national level. I mean, they would be, oh, my goodness, they would be just analyzed and debated and looked over. And, of course, that would go through a membership vote on the state level. And so, you know, there is a producer somewhere that had an idea or a staff member that wrote it down on paper, and it got tweaked and analyzed and discussed and debated and then made it, you know, past, this, past their, maybe even their local level to the state level to the national level, and then it's made it to the board of directors, and they voted on it to send it out to the membership, and it's voted out. It's just this really cool process that I don't think a lot of people really understand. Well, again, uh, it, it just uh, so many moving parts and, and so much uh, goes into those policies. Uh, but again, they just start with the state associations and, and they work their way up. Uh, it's very complex, but uh, very grassroots. Uh, uh, no, no one can argue that. Well, they try to. <laughs> they try to argue it. But I, I, from a producer standpoint, I, it, just, it just amazes me. Um, you know how how producers can have such an such a vocal opinion on on those policies and how it, it ended up majority of the policy was wrote by producers or by producers that took it to their state associations and had staff members help them in drafting that and and that just is what blows my mind is that you know we're constantly saying well NCBA is controlled by this group of individuals or whatnot I'm like yeah I've never I've all I've, all I've seen in our in our policies is is they're coming from producers. And, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a great testament to the association. Well, Jacqueline, I, I know you, you're busy here today, so I want to thank you for your time. But what, what is one last message you would just like to share maybe with those young producers that are, are either coming out of college or a two-year program or, and coming back to an operation or wanting to come back to an operation? What, what are some words of encouragement or advice you have for them? I, you know, I think the biggest one is I look back to, to where I was and, and what I'm doing now, and it's just, it's continue to be aggressive. Um, don't, don't, let, don't let a downturn in the markets or the economics or whatever get you down. Um, just, stay, just stay cool, calm and collected, and, and put your head down and plow forward. And that's one of the things that my dad has taught me. Um, my, but definitely, we're business partners now in the home place, and He's my role model and inspiration for doing what I do. And he's like, yeah, yeah, we're in a drought. It happens. You know, we had flooding last year. It happens. Cattle market sucks. It happens. It is what it is. And, and, and I think, you know, a lot of times we'll get worked up. And, and I think it's just as long as you can t- continue to educate yourself and to learn and to grow and to, to always think outside the box. You don't have to think like every other producer out there. You can think your own unique way. And there, and there might be a place for it. And at the same time, take advantage of those networking opportunities. I have, a, I have my staff right now here consists of, I've got an intern um, that just graduated high school, and I, my full-time gal that helps me out, she actually interned for me in college. And her and her husband live out here now. They moved here from Iowa. And so, you know, those internships are extremely important, and you can learn a lot from them. Again, Jacqueline Wilson, thank you so much for for joining us on the Cattleman's Call podcast. Uh, Is there a website where folks can learn more about all your operations? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, we just, it actually went live about a week and a half ago, so it's great. Um, they can head over to flyingdiamondbeef.com and, and check it out. And hopefully, um, if they're there, they can order some beef too. We're getting, working on shipping, all the shipping fun stuff right now. So, yep, absolutely. You can sure check us out there. Also, follow me on social media, on Twitter, um, Facebook, Snapchat, all those fun ones <laughs> that take up a lot of time. <laughs> Oh, they do. Well, but thank you so much for, for taking time to, to share your, your story with us here on the Cattleman's Call podcast again. Nebraska's Jacqueline Wilson, thanks for joining us here today. Thanks, Wayne. All right, friends, that will do it for today's Cattleman's Call podcast. Make sure and subscribe, share it with your friends on social media, and I'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.